Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Okay, so we're in this series, as um, you just found out, about the Lord's Prayer. I was just going to do one talk on the Lord's Prayer. And then the thing is with it, we said that, that when you're praying the Lord's Prayer, it's not necessarily, see, the way I was brought up was that you memorise this prayer and you say the prayer. And the kind of tradition of Christianity I was brought up with was basically you might, um, you might say it a bit like, a, a, to be honest with you, a bit of a punishment. If you've done lots of bad things, you'd have to say the Lord's Prayer lots of times um, to you know, kind of get right with God again. And so when I was a kid, I used to try, I, I memorised it and would say it really fast so I could get, you know, get through three versions of the Lord's Prayer really quickly and then go out and do more bad stuff. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, which probably wasn't intended to uh, happen that way, but that was the way it was with me. And so, um, and then actually what we discovered is that if you stop, if you pause, you can stop in the Lord's Prayer, just going through it, and actually... It can, um, you know, you can just ponder a word or a few words or a phrase and you can kind of think, well, what does that actually mean? And, uh, and then just pressing pause on it, it just, you can actually, you can, you know, effectively never stop praying the Lord's Prayer. You know, you can just keep going around it and going through it and going deeper into it over and over again. So, you know, we've, we've said, you know, when we say our Father, we can press pause on that and think what it is that, that we have this privilege of being able to call God our Father, but he's in heaven and what does that mean to have a dad who's in heaven and just to be able to sit and think about that and you could you know, spend a long time praying into God thank you that you're my father and that you're in heaven and you know, your kingdom comes so, so we can do it like that and we can, we can press pause and we can keep on going and uh, we've, we've kept going week after week and pausing at different ones and I've determined that I will finish it tonight I, uh, I did think at one point I could do the kingdom for one week, the power the next week, the glory the next week, and then do another week on our men. But uh, <laughs> then I thought, no, everybody just starts throwing things at me. So instead, let's stand, if you're able to stand, and we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. Let's go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Take a seat. Because we can pause, we can stop, we can uh, ponder on all those phrases. But what we're going to do now is actually... Think about that phrase that says, yours is the kingdom. Okay, somewhere around there, there's a, a, a flip chart. Could somebody just bring it up for me? Yeah, please. Because um, what I want you to do, just for a few minutes, is uh, I'm going to ask you to get in groups like tens, no, fives, sixes, rather than in threes, and just sort of discuss what's the opposite of that? Yours is the kingdom. What's the, what is the, what's the opposite of that? And, um, and then uh, what, what, you know, what would it mean if the opposite of that was true for me? Yeah? What's the opposite of yours is the kingdom, talking to God? And then what's the, what does it mean, what's the opposite of it? And what would be the implications, if you like, of living and thinking the opposite of that? Do you get it? 
Let's get into little groups, a few minutes, just chat about that, and then we'll come back together. How do I so, yours is the kingdom. What's the opposite? Mine. Mine is the kingdom. Okay, so if I'm living and thinking and acting as if mine... Unless anybody's got another, another thing? Huh? Only mine, yeah? So it's about mine being the kingdom. What? Anybody else? Any other thoughts, insights? The devil's is the kingdom, yeah? Huh? Idolatry is the kingdom. We've got other things that are making his idols, making them the king. Yeah? Yeah, seeing him as less than the king, yeah? <laughs> right, yeah, that there is no kingdom. That's good. We spent a year last year looking at the kingdom, so it's uh, pretty good <laughs> that we can throw stuff out about the kingdom. I'm going to go with mine is the kingdom. If I'm living like mine is the kingdom, what kind of implications does that have for my life? My rules, my turf. My rules? Yeah? My what? My turf, so I've got to protect it. What else? <coughs> Selfishness, because it's mine, yeah. The word mine's there all the time, isn't it? So I'm going to be about building my kingdom, which is actually, I mean, you could call it, I suppose I could put in there, empire, you know, because it's never going to be a kingdom, because I'm not actually a king, but I can build my own empire, can't I? In terms of my business and all those kind of things. We can, can live as if I'm the king, the king of my little castle, whatever my little castle is I used to always be amazed when I was in the police to find that you'd have people who'd be like a criminal who would rule over stuff that wasn't worth ruling you know they would fight to be in control of you know this particular estate that nobody really wanted to massively live on and to be able to have you know have the money for the drugs but really it was about having other people look up to them in some way to sort of establish that I feel like a king now you know that's really what was going on it was to to bolster that that self kind of image and um, you know we could all end up you know in different ways on that kind of drug if you like wanting it to be about my kingdom making myself uh, king um, I'm trying to build my own little empire and can I do that and at the same time be focused on God's kingdom? It's going to be a choice, isn't it, every time? Which kingdom am I building? Which king am I elevating in my life? Who am I trying to, to have exalted and lifted up? Um, because, you know, there's, no, there's not room for two heads in a crown. So... Mine is the kingdom. You know, just after Peter stepped up and said to Jesus, if you remember this in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter had like this aha moment where he kind of went, I know, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, you're right. And you know, this didn't, you didn't work that out by yourself. You got outside help. <laughs> you know, it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven that that's who I am. So Peter has this insight moment. But then you know that the disciples, they were always arguing. What were they always arguing about? Which one of them was the greatest? Which one of them was going to get to sit in the best seat? 
But when we get to heaven, who's going to sit at your right hand and all this kind of stuff? We're always trying to, you know, jockey for position in some way and to be the king or to, to have that kind of thing going on. They're trying to be that. And so um, the next thing is, if you remember, Jesus uh, is, is, is talking and, uh, to Peter and he, he says, um, you know, he, he actually spoke the opposite of what he just said. Peter spoke the opposite of what he just said very quickly because um, Jesus started to talk to the disciples and say, here's how I'm going to get my crown. First of all, it's going to be a crown of thorns. I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And Peter's like, whoa, hang on. May this never happen. It's like, this, this can never, ever happen. That's not, that isn't the way that you get exalted. That's not the way that you, you are the king. Kings don't do that. See, Peter really did love Jesus. He really wanted to serve him. And he got a lot of stuff right. But Jesus turned to him and what did he say? Get behind me. Satan. He's not so much calling Peter Satan as he's talking about the mindset that's behind it, which is directly opposed to the way that Jesus is thinking. Because he says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It's like you're thinking like people think. You don't just think like people think. You don't have to just think like people think. You can, you can think in a kingdom manner. So mixed, and I know what that's like, because I can be like Peter, mixed into my genuine desires for Jesus to be exalted and for him to be the king are the things of men. The, the things that I want about me to be kind of exalted. And, and when you start talking about um, a cross and a crown of thorns, who, who doesn't want to avoid those kind of things? You know, we want the gold crown. We want the jewels. We want the crown jewels. And so Jesus challenges Peter's dreams and aspirations and says, I've got some different desires than you've got. Whose kingdom are we usually serving? Whose kingdom is it that we're usually serving? Um, We've just got to move on to the next slide. I, I, didn't, I didn't print this off, which was a mistake, because now I've got no idea how to turn it on to the next one on here. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. 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 Okay, next one. Next one, please. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's put that on. So this is how kings are. If you remember this, the prophet Samuel... All the people of Israel wanted a king to rule over them. They were like, give us a king like everybody else. We want to be a king like everybody else. So the prophet Samuel says, you know, you don't want a king. You've got a king, actually. His name's God. You're not going to get a better king than him. And then they were like, no, no, we do want a king. We want to have a king that will be our king, just like all the other nations have got a king. We want a king, we want a king. How come we've not got a king? And then Samuel hears God say to him, okay, tell them this. This is what the Lord said. This isn't Samuel's idea. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will, who will reign over you. And you can see this actually in pretty much every form of human leadership. See, I love to read about leadership. I love to, to talk, teach about leadership. But this is, however many leadership books you get, the base leadership of all kinds of politics, all kinds of businesses, 
um, can end up like this. These are the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plough his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. He's going to take your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We just sang about how our God fights our battles, but they're like, we want a human leader who's going to lead us this way and it's just like okay you get a king this is how kings are this is how governments end up this is how prime ministers and presidents and people in charge of corporations and businesses this is how it works this is the other kingdom if you like and what we're saying here is there's always a tension between these things. And so I, I know in my own leadership that I can have a tendency to be um, like a king, like that, wanting stuff off people, demanding and taking things for myself. And I have to watch that, that form of leadership that is demanding others do what I want rather than serving them and their best interests. Because we do have a, a God who's a king. Jesus is our God and he is also a great king. And, um, you know, I, I, I love how, um, how, how we, we get this idea about our God coming and, and, and being unlike all of the other kings because he's the servant king as we sing about, isn't he? And the way that he rules is that he serves. So, like with us now, we get to rule by serving, not by ruling. And again, there's this tension between what we're doing. Is like, are we just going to be about getting myself elevated and my own kingdom built, or am I going to be about uh, the kingdom that God has got for me? So, um, next, what's the opposite of praying to God? Yours is the power. What does that lead to? Back in your groups, just a few minutes. What's well, the opposite of praying and living like yours is the power? Okay, we'll just press pause on that and you can shout stuff out in a minute. I just wanted to circle back to the idea of the, the, the kingdom, the kingdom of of priests, which, uh, which Peter talks about. Peter wrote about uh, how we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Priests serve. They serve God. They serve people. So we are a kingdom, but we're a kingdom of priests. It's, it's, it's a different kind of 
king. I love what Bill Johnson wrote about this different way to be kings. Instead of just grabbing it all for ourselves and building our own kingdom, he, he says this. Um, like our master, we are both royalty and servants. Jesus served with the heart of a king, but ruled with the heart of a servant. That's good, isn't it? This is the essential combination that must be embraced by those who long to shape the course of history. Royalty is my identity. Servanthood is my assignment. Intimacy is my life source. So before God, I'm an intimate. Before people, I'm a servant. Before hell and its powers, I'm a ruler with no tolerance for their influence. Wisdom knows which role to fulfill in its proper time. Boom. So, what's the opposite of yours is the power. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to do that again because that's the way I'm going to live. Basically, if you're not praying this, if you're not a Christian, you're dependent on your own power. That's your option. What, what's the implications? What's life going to be like? Power corrupts. Yeah, so, so the, you, my use of power will, will bring corruption. Control. It will run out quickly. Yeah, that's great. It will run out before, before we know because however powerful I am, it, I'm not, I'm, I'm my own source of power. I've got no outside source to replenish that. What else? Hmm? Failure. Failure. In the end, I mean, I might look like a really, really good failure. I might be a better failure than somebody else. What else? What else is that power going to do? Competitive. Competitive, yeah, absolutely. Because um, that's the only way I can feel better, is to be better than somebody else. Hmm? Toil. Yeah, it's just hard work. Mine is the power. I've got to work it out. I've got a problem. I need to sort it out. I need my own, my own way. I've got to figure out this problem because it's my problem and there's no outside help. This is um, uh, humanism. This is the answer of humanism. It's the opposite to yours is the power is ours is the power. Humanity's got the power. I got the power. <laughs> Sorry, I went all 80s. There's a, you know, this is one of the most popular books at the moment. You can go to W.H. Smith and you'll see this. Flying off the shelves. There's this one called Sapiens and there's this one called Homo Deus. Anybody seen this book? Quite popular. Big, thick book. It's a very... It, it, it surprises me that people are still kind of reading this stuff as if it's like new because it's not. Because the first book was like a history of, you know, looking through the history so far. It's like this is how the first book of how we got to. People loved it. It's like the history book. This one is looking into the future. What it basically says is humanity's pretty much solved all of its major problems now. And everything else is we're just waiting. Soon, the writer says, we, we, we're going to live in a healthy, prosperous, harmonious world 
and humanity will be able to turn our attention to the pursuit of eternal youth and happiness. And this is what we're going to be focusing on in the future. He looks into the future of mankind and he says that very optimistically that the, soon the three enemies, famine, war and plague will all be completely under human control because they're all just technical problems. And he says death is just a technical problem too. So before long, we will keep on, progressively we'll tweak our genes and become the perfect human. We'll be, we'll be God humans. Just wait and see. Very, very soon, men will be gods. Artificial intelligence will help it all to work out. I think we've got a slide for this. We just put it on. Uh, next one. Uh-oh, did I not do that one? Oh, no, I forgot to bring it. I forgot to update it. I've got it on here. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, I'll show you. No, no. He basically says that in this book, I'll read some, I'll read some quotes from it instead. This is what he says. Because um, this, is, this, this isn't really anything new at all. This is what humanists have always said. Atheists have always said. Basically, the answer is us. We're getting better. Everything's getting better. People are just getting better. We just, it's all just, we just need to progress. We need to be enlightened. Science has got all of the answers. Now, I'm not saying science has got any answers, but I don't believe science has got all the answers. Because if, if that was the case, we would have had them by now. He says, in the last few decades, we've managed to rein in famine, plague and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely resolved, but they've been transformed into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any God to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done to prevent famine, plague and war. And we will and we'll usually succeed in doing it. Truly, there are still some notable failures. <laughs> but when faced with such failures, we no longer shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's the way things work in our imperfect world, or God's will be done. Rather, when famine, plague or war break out of our control, we feel somebody must have screwed up. So we will set up a commission of inquiry. And next time, we'll do it better. See, that is the answer, isn't it? When things go wrong. You look at how things go wrong, people set up an inquiry to find out what went wrong, believing that next time, of course, it's bound to be better. But it doesn't deal with the internal problem, which is me. All of this is, the problem is, I'm not perfect. As J. John says, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And until we get that changed, until people get changed, then it doesn't really matter what else is changed. But this, is, this says... I quote, acknowledging our past achievements sends a message of hope and responsibility. It encourages us to make even greater efforts in the future. Given our 20th century accomplishments, if people continue to suffer from famine and plague and war, we can't blame it on nature, certainly not on God. It is within our power to make things better. It's like, it's down to us. He says, death is just a technical problem and every technical problem has a technical solution. We don't need to wait for the second coming to be able to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a lab can do it. <laughs> if traditionally death was the speciality of priests, now engineers are taking over. And then he goes on to say that from now on, the flagship enterprise of modern science will be to defeat death and to grant humans eternal youth. 
That's it. That's the future, guys. We're all going to live forever. It's all going to be fine. Nobody's going to die. Because actually all of this comes down to, the Bible says, fear of death. That's the reason that people live like this. And you see, the thing is, there's nothing new in that book. And it's the same old humanism that still believes the serpent lie in the garden that told the first humans, you don't need God, you can be God. The books fly off the shelf because it appeals to people's desire to say, I've got the power, I can do it, I can sort my own life out. There's a famous poem by Henley, Invictus, and it comes up time and time again in these kind of books and sometimes in movies, etc. It gets referenced, it finishes like this. It, not, it matters not how straight the gates, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's what this says. I've got the answers. I'm in charge. I'm capable. I'm strong enough. I've got the power. And, when, and if only people realise that, if only people got more capable and, and more self-reliant, then we would all become more enlightened and we would be more peaceful. But again, the problem with that is, actually, it doesn't work. That's the only problem. It hasn't worked. That was the same stuff that they were saying all the way through what they call the Enlightenment. In the 19th century, all these philosophers and people were saying that, you know, there would be no wars. They said that in the 19th century. And then the 20th century came along and kind of spoilt it. Because they said that now finally people are enlightened by science. The problem with people is we still need a saviour. And his is the power. And then finally, next one. Oh, sorry, the Apostle Paul. See, he talks about this and how, how power works, how this kind of power works. And it's always going to annoy people who want the power to be able about their own strength and their own wisdom. You know, Paul said that the, 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 the message of the cross is foolishness to people who are wise in their own eyes and in their own strength and so you know he talks about something that happened and how the power of God got through to him on one, one occasion he talks about we don't even know what it was scholars argue about what it was whether it was a person whether it was a disease some people say it was an ophthalmic condition and all kinds of different things but he basically says three times I begged the Lord to take it away and each time he said to me my grace is all you need my power works best in weakness God doesn't need our strength God doesn't need our power to get his will done on the earth. But he'll use our weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ can work through me. It's through humility. It's through recognising I need God's power. When I ask for it, he puts it through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. And in the insults. The hardships, the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So there's things, you know, each one of those things is that things that I might, in my own natural self, I would rise up against my own weaknesses and try to be strong. If somebody insults me, I want to use my power to be able to get them back. If I'm going through hardships, what do I want to do? I want to use my own power to not make them quite so hard. If I'm persecuted... I'm going to try and grip my teeth and get through them and all, whatever troubles there are that are coming against me. Again, this is the, this is the, the tension that we've got going between the, the human natural way to do it and the supernatural way to do it. 
And just to acknowledge, I'm weak. You know? Don't, you know, when people say, well, religion's just a crutch and all that kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, but you, you've got your own crutch. Everybody's got something they're leaning on. Ours works. Ours, ours is one you can lean on. Jesus is the only one that you can lean on, and in him we're strong. Next uh, slide, please. Question time. What's the opposite? Sorry. <laughs> Mine, all right, yes, thank you very much. And what are the implications? Yeah, shout them out. What's the implications of, 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 if it's mine is the glory, what, what's life going to look like? Lots of likes on Instagram. Living for likes. Having a perfect Insta story. Yeah, I'm looking for the glory. I want everybody to like me. I want everything to look great. It's all about image. It's all about what people say I am. That's the, you know, the sum of who I am is what people say I am, what people think of me. I'm looking for the glory from, to come from other people. It's hard to define glory. It's not like a, it's not like a stuff. It's not like, you know, you could say, you can, you can talk about this box and you can define this box and it's plastic and it's, you know, kind of rectangular and it holds stuff. But, but glory it's hard to define. It's more because glory is a bit more like more like beauty. It's hard to define beauty, isn't it? It's a concept, and you can look at something. You can know, wow, that's that's beautiful. It's hard to define it, though, isn't it? You know what it is, and you kind of know what it isn't. In the same way with glory. But I think the, I was thinking about what, how could I try and define glory, and I think basically in terms of God's glory, is His ultimate perfect perfection. He's just perfectly perfect. And that's why Romans says, we all fall short of what? His glory. Because none of our perfect is perfect. You know, it all needs our own little filter (laughs) or something to be able to make it look a little bit better than it is. That's how you end up with what looks more and more like a glorious life. By kind of fake it till you make it in some way. But God never fakes it. And, and that's why God says, it's a good thing to pray. Jesus says, yours is the glory. Because it is. Because there's only him who's perfectly perfect. And actually when we do that, there's something about as we focus on his glory, we get a reflection of that that sort of shines out from us. That's why when, you know, it says that Moses would spend time in the presence of God and when he came down from the mountain, he'd have to put a veil over his face because the glory of God shone from him so much and people were like, ah, scary face. And it was like this reflection of God's glory that was coming from the outside. As he, as he, and, and, the, and the New Testament says, now as we behold Christ's glory, we're being transformed. And it's an internal thing now. Because now he's on the inside of us. And that glory, that light can shine out from us. I was just at Sharston this morning and somebody came up to Lucy Smith and said to her, somebody first time in the church, she said to her, there's something about just your face and I can see that you love Jesus shining out from your face. You know, there's this, it's like the moon hasn't got any light of its own. It reflects 
the glory of the sun. And that's, you know, that's what it is with us. It, it, as we go on through life, however what we might look like to other people, when we reflect God's glory, there's an incredible beauty that comes from just being able to, you know, you become like the one that you worship, don't you? You become like the one that you focus on. You become like what you, you focus on. And the opposite, what's the opposite of yours is the glory is that I've got to try and live for my own glory. And I'm judging it off what other people think. And it's so hard to see this in myself. It's easy to see it in other people. But it's really hard for me to ever see this in myself. Henry V, um, William Shakespeare, uh, and he actually existed and it was in history. <laughs> At the end of the Battle of Agincourt, they, um, they, they said a psalm. Put the next one on, please. Psalm 118. The, the king actually went round the battlefield. We'll read about this in a minute. And he got all, because it was like this impossible victory. And they saw it as being an answer to prayer. And the, the one who was the king of England made all of his subjects get down on one knee and thank God. And, and he got the priests to sing this, to say, you know, only God could have done this. And they wanted to give him the glory. Why don't we just say this psalm together? Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory. For your unfailing love and faithfulness. Why let the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does as he wishes. Their idols are merely things of silver and gold shaped by human hands. Next slide please. So this is a historical record after Agincourt. When the king had passed through the field and saw neither resistance nor appearance of any Frenchman <laughs> saving the dead corpses, he brought all his army together about four of the clock afternoon. And first to give thanks to Almighty God for this glorious victory, he caused his chaplains first to sing this psalm, commanding every man to kneel down on the ground. Non noblis domini, which is to say in English, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to thy name, let the glory be given. Which done, he, which done, he caused anthems to be sung, giving praises to God, and not boasting nor bragging of himself, nor of his human power. I think when God finds people like that, he, he'll do incredible victories through people who, are, who, who, who live like that. Not to us, not to us, Lord, but to your name. Let the glory be given. Years ago, I read a book. I don't even know if it's still in print. It was uh, one of those that really struck me. And it's, uh, some people have heard of like The Heavenly Man, that book. Heard that? This is like a kind of similar sort of book. By a, it's about, it's, he didn't write it himself because if he did, he kind of would have um, probably spoiled the whole thing because he was such a humble guy. William Doomer, this book was called Take Your Glory, Lord. And it's probably still available. You might be able to get it on Amazon. But um, I remember reading this book and it really struck me. This little South African guy, he, he, was, um, he, was, he was a shepherd and his mum said to him when he was a little boy, you're going to be a preacher you're called to be a preacher. I know that. And she prayed for him that he would be. And he wasn't sure, but he kind of loved God's growing up and he would pray as he was a shepherd boy, a bit like David. And then one time it says, this is the turn of the 20th century. He's out near Durban and he'd been sick a lot. And he had all kinds of disappointments. And he was like, well, you know, if God's real, how come I keep getting sick? And how come, you know, I pray and that didn't work and all of that. And actually what he decided to do was that he was going to fast and seek God. And he fasted for seven days. And then it says at midnight, as he got up to pray, 
quote, he felt a touch on his head and he knew it was the finger of God. Heat like fire raced through his body and caused him to sweat profusely. He collapsed and as he lay on the floor, he felt a surge of cold follow the heat and realised incredulously that the pain was no more. So from then, he stopped being a shepherd. He went to be the shepherd of a tiny little church, really struggling little church. And it was, nothing was working. He was like an evangelist, but people weren't becoming Christians. And then Jesus appeared to him in a vision and he said to him, your dead church will become a witness to me. You will see humanity transform from darkness to light. My son, I anoint you with the gift of healing. I charge you to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to perform in his name the ministry of healing, body, soul and spirit. And he believed that and his ministry ended up taking him all around the world. It's incredible stories of, of healings that he did. Um, various parts of Africa. He actually came to Scotland at one point and there's a minister's wife who, who invited him and he prayed for their daughter who was blind and, uh, and, and she, she was healed before he went to preach at the meeting. And um, he, he would, there's the stories of him confronting witch doctors and them just becoming Christians because they saw that the power that he had was so much stronger than the power that they had. And he went to the funeral of his friend's five-year-old little girl and prayed for her and she was raised from the dead at the funeral and the title of this book comes from what he said because say he didn't write the story they start off the book by saying he would never write a story about himself but whenever anything happened in his life and in his ministry whenever there was a miracle whenever anything happened he would always say take your glory lord take your glory lord i want to be more like that of it in worship when we can just give the glory to God. We're going to do that in a minute. I remember hearing, um, I went to see uh, one of my favourite Christian musicians, a guy called Michael Card, and uh, listened to albums of his and all that. And then years ago, I was, I was in, he was in Nottingham. He did, a, he did a concert, kind of a gig. And lots of people came from various churches and, we all, and listened to the songs. And it was, it was great. And, and he's a real kind of deep theologian. He writes some really good songs as well. And, and then at the end... It just got everybody worship. He wrote El Shaddai. You know the song El Shaddai? Got everybody singing El Shaddai. Everybody's singing it. And people are like praising God and got their eyes shut. And then I'll never forget that, that he just, as he got everybody worshipping and singing, he had his Bible here. And he just kind of walked off the stage while everybody's worshipping Jesus like this. And then he just went. And he was gone. And it was like, you know, not me. Take your glory, Lord. I want to be more like that. Amen. <laughs> Should we stand and uh, we'll... <laughs> no, no, I just... Well, it's very nice of you. Thank you very much. I don't mind. <laughs> okay, let's have the band up to, uh, and we're going to worship him. Let's pray as we do so. Lord, we thank you. Yours is the kingdom. Why don't we say that? Yours is the kingdom. Just think about any area in your life where I've been trying to be king. I've been trying to rule. I've been trying to reign. I've been trying to be in charge. I give you control over that and say you are the king. Yours is the power. Say that. Yours is the power. Any area where I've just not got the power. I haven't got the strength. I haven't got the wisdom. I, I'm, I'm, I'm weak. Lord, thank you that your power can come through. When I just lay myself down and acknowledge my weakness before you. Let the power of Christ rest upon everybody right now who's feeling weak. The resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And yours is the glory. 
You're, you're the only perfectly perfect one. We all fall short of that, Lord. But thank you that when we give you glory, we start to go from glory to glory. We reflect your glory in increasing measure and become more like you. So, Lord, that's part of what worship's about. And as we now give our attention to you fully in worship, thank you that we are being changed and transformed from glory to glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.